Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. AgriPod is brought to you by Smart Nutrition Map plus MST. Soil is your most powerful machine. On this episode, groundbreaking research and fertilizer techniques from a soil science expert could increase yields for producers. Dr. Jeff Shano and a team of colleagues have recently published a soil study that could change fertilizer techniques and increase crop yields for prairie farmers. In new research conducted using the Canadian light source Synchrotron at the University of Saskatchewan, the group analyzed the reaction that fertilizers undergo once they hit the soil and how effective current techniques are in retaining nutrients and micronutrients for plant use. Shana will explain how this can improve a farmer's bottom line. Reduced international air travel, masking and social distancing to prevent the spread of COVID-19 is being credited for the dramatic reduction in influenza and other respiratory infections this year. Dr. Susan Detmer, an associate professor at the Department of Veterinary Pathology with the Western College of Veterinary Medicine, says the number of cases of influenza did go up slightly during the winter, but dropped again dramatically. And for humans, there have been record low numbers. Detmer tells us why this information is important when dealing with infections in swine barns and the concerns that it could generate. After the break, Jeff Shano. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. With me is University of Saskatchewan professor, Dr. Jeff Shano. Now, when we start talking, getting in-depth into research projects, it can get quite detailed. And for me, it might get a little fuzzy. So I guess just to break it down for for someone like me who isn't as familiar with this work, just my understanding is simplified. You're just looking for ways to improve fertilizer use and increase crop yields. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's ultimately what the research is aimed towards as the end goal. And I guess from a research standpoint, we're myself in particular, I'm interested in what happens to fertilizer when you add it to the soil. Where does it go? What does it react with? What kinds of forms or species are produced? Because that affects the availability of that nutrient to the plant for plant uptake. And it also affects the potential loss of fertilizer from that field into somewhere we don't want it, like the air or the water. So tell me about this project. Who was involved? Let's make sure we give credit where credit is due. And about the process that you went through, because I understand that you started by collecting soil samples from, uh, from across Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Yeah, I guess I guess really in terms of, of looking at different ways of following the fate of fertilizer in the soil and using the Canadian light source, it really started over 10 years ago. Um, I was lucky to be able to collaborate with uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Derek Peak, who is an expert in soil chemistry and also in the use of the synchrotron. And uh, in my own research, as I say, I'm interested in, in how fertilizers behave in the soil. And as that pertains to what we call the four R's of fertilizer nutrient management, the right rate, the right source, the right time, and right place. And uh, part of that really involves understanding what happens to different fertilizers when they're added to the soil and different placements over time and uh, how the soil conditions and the different form of fertilizer will, will influence that. 
So we started work over 10 years ago looking at uh, at, uh, at phosphorus uh, fate in the soil, and uh, one of the techniques that we employed was the use of the Canadian light source, along with our conventional chemical techniques. And that told us a lot about uh, the kinds of things in the soil, like calcium that phosphorus will react with. Uh, after that, we, we, we took a look at sulfur and its fate in the soil and found the synchrotron to be useful in, in revealing the kinds of, of different chemical forms that that sulfur ended up in the soil and, and how that related to plant availability in different soil types. And then this most recent research work where we applied the technique to micronutrients like copper and uh, and zinc. And so along the way, uh, a lot of folks involved with this, and in particular graduate students, PhD students, who used the uh, Canadian light source along with other techniques uh, to better understand uh, the behavior and fate of these added fertilizer nutrients in the soil. We've heard so much about Canadian light source at USASC and, and the numerous ways that it, it can be used and has been beneficial, not everything, including agriculture. Can you explain a little about the process of how you use this facility for this particular type of work? Yeah, sure. So what it really involves is spectroscopy or the use of light. And uh, in our particular case, we mainly used what's called the X-ray absorption near-edge spectra. So what we look at is we look at the absorption of X-rays by different compounds in the soil, and that produces a kind of a signature uh, attached to the different compounds that are present. So using that different behavior of light when it strikes different kinds of compounds in the soil allows us to identify what's actually there. And once we know what's there, we can make inferences about how soluble it is and therefore how easily a plant root could take up that nutrient from the soil, as well as how it, how easily it might escape in runoff water moving across that field. So really we're looking at, 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 at how light interacts with a compound in the soil in order to identify it. And so what we do is we, we actually take a sample of soil and, and ultimately that sample of soil that we may collect from a number of different locations in the field or in some of our past research work, what we might collect from the center of a fertilizer band versus a few uh, centimeters away, that soil on a, on a field scale, at a, at a scale of you know several meters uh, across the field, ultimately that sample goes in there and we look at... Uh, at the distribution and the nature of that uh, of that nutrient on a on a molecular scale, so really it's it's it, it's looking at nutrients in different scales and and the uh, synchrotron really gives us an opportunity to look at things up really close. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now you referenced uh, for our uh, fertilizer management practices, but your research has provided some new insights. So for farmers that, that try to follow the four hours, uh, is there anything different that uh, that they would note from this work? Yeah, it, I think it helps us understand why different fertilizer forms behave differently in different soils and also why different placements of fertilizer will work better or worse under different soil conditions. For example, in this most recent research work, we were able to identify that uh, a lot of the copper and zinc that's applied, especially if it's applied in a broadcast application, ends up getting fixed or tied up by carbonates if they're present at the soil surface. Uh, 
And in that case, having that fertilizer in a more concentrated band uh, can help reduce that tie-up by the soil constituent and make it more available to the, to the plant. So it really helps us understand what's going on in the soil. When we understand what's going on in the soil, in different soil types, under different conditions, that helps us to make better recommendations for uh, when and how and what to apply as a fertilizer source. I'm speaking with Jeff Shano, USASC soil science professor, and we're talking about some new research that's going on using Canadian light source at the campus. Because it's all about doing things the right way, but also making money for farmers. So they're getting the best bang for their buck. So when it comes down to it, uh, where are they going to be able to learn more about this work and uh, how they can improve their operations? Well, I think ultimately it, 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 it kind of makes its way down through in the form of a better general fertilizer recommendation. And I guess you might say more precision applied in terms of, uh, you know, under these conditions in this particular soil type, uh, this would be the preferred placement or the per- preferred form, whereas uh, in, a, in a different field or even in a different location of the field, this may be the uh, preferred uh, rate or form or, or, or placement, uh, because it really depends on the environmental conditions, the soil conditions, as to uh, how that fertilizer is best going to be applied and what rate's going to be appropriate, the timing and the source and so on. So it allows us to be more precise in determining um, what particular practice is going to give the farmers the maximum recovery of that nutrient in the plant. And that's what you want to get the maximum economic return on those fertilizer dollars spent. Your work has been published in the Canadian Journal of Soil Science? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, great. And when you were talking earlier about collecting soil samples, I understand that, that you also used samples from your own farm. I guess that makes permission quite easy then. <laughs> yeah. In, in this particular micronutrient work, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Ryan Hanks, actually went across the western Canada and collected soil from a variety of different locations, representing a huge array of different soil conditions, past management history. So we really had a good representation of the kinds of, of soils that are present in western Canada, particularly those that are susceptible to, uh, to micronutrient deficiency. And um, indeed, uh, even on, of course, on, on, on my own farm as well, and I used my own farm a lot for, for doing research plots and for collecting soils to bring back into, into studies, uh, uh, you can see some very large variations in soil properties, conditions, responses to applied fertilizer, even over short distances in a field. For example, moving from a knoll into a depression. And so some of the samples that we collected were, in fact, from different locations within single fields. Yeah, and obviously it's going to make a big difference on your soil types and uh, that we've got it all here in Saskatchewan, don't we? Indeed, absolutely. And across the prairies, we have an incredible uh, array of, of soils with, with, with widely contrasting properties uh, uh, that, that we need to know something about, absolutely, if we're going to manage them best. And that's what part of a very important part of, of precision uh, uh, farming is uh, managing uh, different soils differently according to their their different characteristics. Where can we find out more about uh, the research that that you've done? Obviously we publish our our scientific work in in journals, journal articles, but uh, uh, radio uh, presentations or or coverage is is, is certainly uh, uh, another place as well as a lot of the popular farm magazines 
and newspapers also contain uh, this kind of information. And we always are presenting our results at different extension venues to farmers as well. So that's another good or location to access our research work. And we look forward to doing that sometime very soon down the road. Jeff, thanks a lot for your time and uh, really interesting work. And we're always fascinated to hear, uh, you know, how agriculture and uh, the Canadian Light Source are working together and, and looking for ways to help farmers. So that's fantastic. Yeah, no, it's exciting work that we plan to continue on into the future. Dr. Jeff Shano is a professor of soil science at the University of Saskatchewan, and he also holds the Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture Chair in Soil Nutrient Management. After the break, Dr. Susan Detmer shares some interesting statistics on influenza and its impact on animal health during this pandemic. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. Dr. Susan Detmer is an associate professor in the Department of Veterinary Pathology at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, Susan, there's been a, a lot less attention paid to seasonal flu as the world really has been focused on COVID-19. So what has the influenza situation been like and how does it compare to what would be considered a more typical year? So for humans, we're seeing record low numbers of influenza infections. They did go up a little bit over the winter, but they've actually started going back down again. And they were so low that it actually wasn't a, a, a season of influenza wasn't actually declared in Canada. It did not make the threshold for the minimum number of cases. And uh, the types of viruses have actually been partially the influenza B virus, about a third in Canada, and the opposite proportion in the United States. It's been two-thirds influenza B in the United States. And the influenza A's have been mixed, um, H3N2, H1N1 pandemic strain, and some of the other uh, seasonal human influences that we normally see. But uh, there's no distinct pattern. There are not enough detected influenzas in North America to say that there's a distinct pattern like we normally have with one strain dominating in the human population. What have been the primary reasons for this decline in influenza and what changes may have contributed to this? So the major cause of influenza strain spread in the human population is airline travel and international airline travel between the southern continent to the northern continent is actually where we see things moving from season to season. And in the southern hemisphere, Australia has been the main place that we look at to see what we can expect. So right now we would normally be looking at Australia, but because they have been in lockdown with a closed border for the last year, they have incredibly low levels of both COVID and influenza A. So we can't go by what they have right now. But because travel has been so limited between countries and even within countries and all of the social distancing and masking that people are doing to prevent COVID transmission. This has actually had a positive effect 
everything has decreased for all the respiratory pathogens, including influenza. So even the common cold is way down in humans this year. There were two confirmed cases of influenza in swine barn workers in Manitoba. Um, I believe one case was H1N1, the other uh, H1N2, but they were not related. What does this suggest and what concerns does this generate when when you have this information? These are actually just the second and third cases of pig viruses in humans in Canada that we've been detecting. And in the United States, they've actually had both of these strains in humans before, more than five years ago. And same circumstances, they recovered just fine. Um, There was very limited infection and they don't typically spread between humans. So the human-to-human spread after these pig viruses get into humans have actually been extremely limited. There's a different type of virus. There's an H3N2 variant virus, which is actually the one that we're more concerned about. And that's the one that there have actually been hundreds of cases of, and mostly in people that show pigs. So these are a different type of pig. These are pigs that are brought to exhibitions and they're usually younger uh, juvenile people that are showing these pigs that are getting infected. And those viruses actually originated, the H3 came from human seasonal viruses in 2010 and got into the pigs. And then they're going back into humans after they've become swine viruses, so they've actually mixed with the swine viruses and still have the hemagglutinin protein on the outside that is human. And so it makes sense that that one would be more adapted to humans, and that's the one that we're more concerned about. We currently do not have any of those H3N2s in Canada. We have not detected any of those. So at this point, that is purely in the United States, and we're not as concerned about that. Right now, we're actually detecting these these three viruses that we have detected in the last year that were pig viruses that got into humans. They all had limited infections, and they all recovered, but we would not have detected these normally. Most often, because there's such a mild infection, people wouldn't go and get tested. And so because of COVID, these are people that are going and getting the COVID testing done. The PCR test for that is negative, And then they're getting tested for influenza after that. And so because of that testing, we're actually detecting these viruses. The first one of these viruses, um, these are actually native to Manitoba, these viruses in pigs. And we've, they first emerged in 2013. And the first case of it in a human was actually detected in 2016 in a human in Minnesota. And um, so that those viruses have actually been around for a while. And we do suspect that people have been infected, but because the infection is so mild, they 
did not seek any medical treatment or testing. You mentioned COVID-19. What risk does COVID pose to the farm? So just like any other workplace, uh, farms have people that go home and come back and they're in close contact in the workplace. So making sure that you're not going to work sick, if you have a cough, that you're getting tested, um, all of those things, wearing a mask, those are still important to do right now. As we're starting to get vaccinated, these people really are um, stepping up and getting vaccinated so that they're less likely to bring it to work or spread it or catch it at work. And so those are going to be key things going forward. Just like the general population getting vaccinated for the the COVID virus, which is the SARS corona type two, and we need to keep that transmission down. Um, just like we would want to prevent influenza transmission in the farms. And we need to take some of the lessons that we're learning from this COVID pandemic and apply it to what we do when we're working on farms, because influenza is a risk. Human influenza in pigs is something that we try to prevent. And every year, especially in January and February after the Christmas holidays, I see a surge in human-to-pig transmission of pandemic H1N1 virus. And this last year, we've had minimal pandemic H1N1 detected in pigs. All of the H1N1 viruses were more than two years on those sites based on the phylogenetics. And so we know that human transmission to pigs was not occurring this year. And that has a lot to do with the fact that the human population wasn't spreading the pandemic virus amongst themselves. So that not take and bring it forward to what we do this next year as influenza makes a comeback in Canada and the United States, we're going to start seeing more pandemic virus circulation in humans and that going back into pigs. And we want to prevent that because it does cause significant production losses on farms. So what are your recommendations to farmers? So the recommendations for respiratory diseases, both COVID and influenza going forward are going to be the same. Um, Making sure that you don't go to work sick, that you take the time off, you do get tested and make sure that you're not bringing influenza onto farms because we know that's a risk. Getting vaccinated for influenza, getting your COVID vaccine, all of those are going to keep it, you from spreading both of the viruses to your coworkers and spreading influenza to the pigs on the farm. All of these are uh, standard biosecurity measures, uh, limiting your contacts on the farms. All of those things are important going forward. So the message remains, get vaccinated. I definitely encourage uh, anyone working on a farm to get your COVID vaccines. Um, this is something that it is not a risk to the pigs, but it is a risk to your fellow co-workers. So 
please make sure that you get your COVID vaccine and then in the fall, make sure you get your influenza vaccine because we don't know how bad the influenza season is going to be yet. I've been speaking with Dr. Susan Detmer, an associate professor with the Department of Veterinary Pathology at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine in Saskatoon. It's time for the weekly Agriculture News Roundup for the week of May 24, 2021. World Organization for Animal Health has now recognized Canada as negligible risk for bovine spongiform encephalopathy. Canadian Cattlemen's Association President Bob Lowe said the BSE era for Canada has now concluded. He said it brought unprecedented hardship to the industry in the early 2000s. To receive negligible risk, a country must demonstrate the last case of BSE was born more than 11 years ago. Canada's last case was reported in 2009. Series Global Ag will build a $350 million canola crush plant on the Saskatchewan U.S. border. Construction of the new 1.1 million metric ton processing facility at Northgate is expected to begin next year. Series Global President and CEO Robert Day said the plant is ideally located to originate canola seed from the farmer with a direct connection to BNSF Railway. It provides the most efficient access to the U.S. market and U.S. ports. Sasquheat is supporting the Canadian Grain Commission fee reduction for official inspection and weighing services. Sasquheat Chair Brett Halstead said ensuring fee-setting process accurately reflects inspection and weighing volumes is crucial to prevent producers from being overcharged. CGC estimated the proposal would reduce fees by almost $14 million in 2021-22 and just over $20 million for the next two fiscal years. Syngenta Canada will split its seed and crop protection businesses. The seed business will fall under the NK Seeds brand. President Trevor Heck says this means that staff will be specialists in either seed or crop protection. Syngenta Canada recently made the decision to drop canola and hybrid wheat development from its portfolio. Phase 2 of the $20 million Food Waste Reduction Challenge has been launched by the federal government. Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bebo said the challenge was set up to help spark new ideas in order for innovators to come up with solutions for a complex issue. Every year, over half of Canada's food supply is wasted and nearly $50 billion of that wasted food is avoidable. The United States is escalating its dispute with Canada over the sale of American dairy products north of the border. The U.S. Trade Representative's office says it wants a dispute settlement panel to examine whether Canada is unfairly keeping American producers from accessing the Canadian market. The U.S. is upset with how Canada is distributing the quantities of certain dairy products that can be imported at lower duty levels, effectively denying U.S. farmers their fair share of the supply-managed Canadian market. A school division in West Central Saskatchewan apologized to farmers after a school sign caused a stir on social media. Outlook Elementary School had been dealing with callers wondering why a sign saying farming affects oceans and hurts habitats ever went up in the first place. SunWest School Division Director of Education Randy Emerson said a social studies class was summarizing its lesson. He said SunWest is a strong supporter and partner of the ag sector. A Saskatchewan farmer may not be able to take credit for a much-needed rain over the Victoria weekend, 
but he started a social media challenge to other farmers to give money to charities in return for some moisture. The rain came, and now several organizations are reaping the benefits. Rob Stone said he posted the challenge on Ag Twitter that he would donate $1,000 to charity if his farm received a half an inch of rain by May 25th. He will direct his donation to the Saskatchewan 4-H Foundation. He says other farmers committed their money to STARS, Telemiracle, Alzheimer's, and numerous local charities. If you like what you've heard, you can rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to subscribe to AgriPod with Alice McFarlane for more weekly episodes. AgriPod was brought to you by Smart Nutrition Map plus MST. Soil is your most powerful machine. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarlane and is a division of the Jim Pattison Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at Farm News Now. Now.com.